You are listening to the Mary Jane Society Podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, Marketing Director for Studio 420. Today, our guest is Lisa Wesser. She has a long career in the alcohol industry as a public relations professional. She transitioned into the cannabis industry and is making a name for herself as the CEO of Trailblaze Public Relations. Lisa and I talked about the different PR tactics working for her clients, tips on working with reporters, and how psychedelics are outpacing cannabis in media interest. Lisa gave us great insights on how to use public relations to build a brand and get noticed. Let's meet Lisa. Hi, Pam. Lisa. How are you? Good. Your space looks so pretty. Thank you. Quite a bit of um, cannabis paraphernalia in here. (laughs) Keep you busy during the day in case you need something. (laughs) Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, let's let's kick it off. So I thought that um, t- uh, it would be helpful if we could just get your background on how you started Trailblaze. I know you have a you know worked for big companies and yeah. came over to cannabis. So I'd like to yeah hear how you how you switched over and decided to jump into cannabis. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, well, um, I have worked in PR um, for uh, more than twenty years. I won't put too much of a timestamp on myself. Um, starting out in um, some pretty big firms like Fleischman Hillard, which is kind of a top three global firm where I worked on really big accounts. Um, you know, I worked in tech. I got to launch the first iPhone, um, you know, uh, and ultimately moved into CPG in-house. And so I ended up in a role where I was leading brand communications for um, AB InBev, which is Bud, Budweiser, Bud Light, but actually there's about, you know, 20 different, um, you know, beers and, um, you know, different beverages that are in their portfolio that people don't realize from Stella Artois down to craft beers, down to wines. Um, and so um, was in that role for several years in New York City, um, first in St. Louis and then in St. Louis or in New York City um, and experienced so much um, just, you know, both rolling out new brands, but also trying to make some of their um, legacy brands like, you know, Budweiser and Bud Light relevant to a new generation. Um, And, you know, working with tons of celebrities, you know, they sponsored everything. So lots of events, it was really like just getting a PhD in PR, you know, working with the best of the best and having so many incredible experiences. Um, And, you know, around 2017, uh, the the company I, I, was started getting interested in cannabis, not for themselves so much, but in watching the industry, because clearly, you know, cannabis and alcohol are industries that interact. Um, They were keeping a close eye on it. And in 2017 um, was, I think, the first big power move, which was when Constellation Brands, which is uh, the parent company of, you know, most of the liquor brands in the world, um, made an investment in Canopy Growth, which was then the biggest cannabis company in the world, um, a 10% investment. And that really kind of rocked the alcohol world because it was really the first sign that um, now people were taking cannabis seriously and that the can- that the alcohol industry was kind of taking it, we can't beat them, so now we're going to join them, uh, you know, position. And, you know, I had seen alcohol on decline, you know, for the past decade with declining sales and, you know, fighting to hold on to any share, trying to kind of force a lot of innovations to win over new consumers. And I saw, you know, the cannabis industry growing triple digits in 
So, um, you know, kind of felt like a no brainer to take a leap into um, a completely new category and apply what I had learned working in a highly regulated space like alcohol, um, where I saw so many similarities as to some of the things that I knew would be coming to the cannabis industry um, and to move into the space. And, you know, really in talking to people that were in the industry, I learned pretty quickly that big agencies wouldn't work with them, right? So, um, you know, they had a really hard time um, finding, you know, support services from, you know, accounting to marketing, to public relations, to branding, because the big companies that work with a lot of the big brands like the Coca-Cola's of the world won't touch cannabis and still won't touch cannabis. So I saw it as an opportunity to take my particular lens, which is, you know, coming from a pretty sophisticated CPG place um, into a nascent industry. And that's really been our calling card ever since. I think you're, like you said, sophisticated experience in, in you know, that high level world is beneficial to, to shape it up and bring it forward. Um, so I, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people that I talk to um, always confuse um, marketing versus public relations and, you know, mm -hmm. and what their purposes are and, you know, think they're all the same. So can you just kind of outline exactly, um, you know, like what's in your PR toolbox and what channels do you usually utilize uh, just to get us kind of started and set the frame? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always an interesting debate of where PR belongs. And to me, PR is marketing, um, because I really think of marketing as anything that is influencing, you know, people to purchase a brand or, you know, develop a relationship with a brand or, or love a brand, right? Um, I really think of it more as, you know, there's kind of, when you're doing marketing, there's three ways to do it. There's the obvious way, which is paid marketing, which is buying an ad, whether it is buying a TV ad or paying an influencer. If you are putting money behind, you know, making sure that people see your content, that is paid marketing. Um, then there's earned media, which is really, you know, um, you know, what PR is, which is when you are trying to get the attention of consumers without paying for it which doesn't mean you're not paying a PR agency or, you know, investing in campaigns, but it means you have less control over the message, but a lot of times it has a much higher impact because it's not coming directly from you. It's coming from a third party. So, you know, somebody is maybe, you know, seeing it, um, you know, on NBC or reading about it in USA Today or Forbes instead of, you know, seeing your billboard. Um, and that can be a lot more convincing. Um, and then there are, you know, channels like owned channels, which is, you know, a brand's own social media channels, and there's word of mouth, right? That is, um, whether it is coming from an unpaid influencer or coming from, you know, their neighbor or their best friend. Um, and those things all play together. And, you know, a more sophisticated CPG approach is to use them like a wheel and use them all together. So we really call what we do marketing communications because we really do a mix of paid and earned. We, we lead with earned, which is PR, um, trying to place our clients, you know, stories um, in the media. But then we also do um, a great deal of paid influencer work um, as well as unpaid influencer work, um, which is kind of, you know, leaning more into that uh, marketing and word of mouth space because increasingly, and especially during the pandemic when everyone was glued to their phone at home, you know, their, their purchases are being primarily influenced by what they're seeing in their social feeds. Kind of one of my favorite things that I've been really noticing right now is the whole infused dinners to yeah promote their brands, uh, dispensaries. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of people doing it and it seems like a great way 
to introduce people to your product? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, events has always been the bread and butter of the PR world, um, whether it is, you know, doing an event um, that a consumer might event, attend or doing an event that media and influencers would attend. And kind of in the pre-COVID days, it was very common when you had a product launch to have a party where you would invite, you know, kind of influential people in media to that launch party, show off your product, maybe have a dinner. Um, if it's cannabis and infused dinner, have some product demos. Um, that's something that we really had to pull back um, during COVID um, and move a lot of those things um, to virtual environments. Um, but events are back this year. I'm starting to see more launch parties. I'm starting to see more sponsored events and things like infused dinners or, you know, activations at, you know, other events like music festivals. Um, those are our great way to introduce people to your brand. Um, I see them first and foremost as relationship builders. Um, you know, we really use those as ways to bring influencers and media, um, you know, like anything else, somebody that you, you know, meet over email or over the phone, it's never going to be as personal as if you've actually sat down at, for a meal with them and spent real time with them. Um, and our industry is very relationship based. So events are a great way to kind of build that relationship with the people that are going to be helping you tell that story. So events absolutely are a big piece of this. Um, we are starting to see more of our clients shifting their budgets towards influencer. I think that is in part because what you're seeing right now, you know, we're at towards the um, end of 2022, the cannabis industry has come off of a bit of a bubble, um, you know, where, you know, things were really soaring. There was a lot of investment rushing to the market. You know, there was a big craze over CBD. Um, cannabis was still new and now we're seeing that flagging a little bit um, and you know a lot of our clients you know are kind of pressed for profit right um, and so we are seeing them um, shift their dollars towards a, kind of away from traditional paid media towards tactics that they feel like might drive more direct revenue um, PR is always important with cannabis because you are so limited in what you can do in social media and from a paid perspective and now we are seeing you know um, more of our clients wanting to invest in influencers, um, moving away from just sending them a free product and hoping they post to maybe trying to create like a 12 month contract with an influencer where they're going to work with them in the long term, you know, and develop a bigger campaign and really kind of bring them into the fold. Um, so that's where we're seeing a lot of, you know, the work going in 2023. Um, and PR, you know, like I said, is always kind of the bread and butter. That's something that, you know, Ideally, a brand kind of keeps always on um, because you don't just want PR when you're launching a product. That's just the beginning of your story. You need to keep telling your story. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a adage. I don't know if it's true or not, but they say you know that in general, a consumer needs to see something seven times before they make a purchase or hear it. Um, and so, you know, our job is kind of to create that surround sound effect where you know. You know, whether somebody saw it on a billboard or heard it on the radio or somebody mentioned to them or it popped up in their feed, you know, they, they've seen it and heard it enough that they finally, you know, feel ready to make a purchase. As far as influencers, are you finding that the influencers that you're working with are not uh, just social media influencers, but maybe, you know, scientists who have a following or, you know, local leaders? Um, are you finding that it's just across the board, the different types of, of influences you're meeting and have influence mm -hmm. or 
how, how is how is that working? Sure. Well, there's different tiers of influencers. There's obviously the celebrity, um, and we have been fortunate to um, work with a few different celebrities, um, you know, from Martha Stewart on down. Um, celebrities always have a lot of influence that, that comes naturally, um, and so it's really about figuring out how to best leverage that in a way that feels authentic to that brand, right? Um, then there are, um, you know, social media influencers. And within that, there are cannabis influencers. And then there are lifestyle influencers. Um, and then there is kind of what you're talking about, which is, you know, um, maybe um, different kind of dignitaries, right, which are, um, you know, people that maybe have a lot of influence in their own community, um, whether that is a local community, or whether it is like a cultural community, you know, like black business owners or something like that. Um, really, everything that we do, we try to first start with what our clients objectives are and create a strategy for that. Um, because we primarily represent THC brands. Um, many of them are only sold in a few states. Um, and so for them, it may not make sense to, you know, spread their whole blanket over the whole U.S. Um, they're much better off targeting their dollars, um, you know, in markets where people can actually purchase. No use advertising and using an influencer in California if the majority of their followers are there and can't purchase your brand because you're in Massachusetts, right? Um, so we are definitely seeing a focus on regional influencers and what I would call kind of mid-sized to micro influencers. So people that, um, you know, are much more targeted, um, that are in a state or even within like a particular metro area within a state. Um, and then when it comes to whether you're using a lifestyle influencer or a cannabis influencer, um, Again, it's going to depend on the brand. If we are trying to market a sleep gummy and we're trying to market that to, you know, women in their 30s and 40s, we're probably not going to use, you know, a cannabis influencer that's, you know, kind of doing like bong demos, right? We are going to go for more of a lifestyle influencer, um, somebody that person might follow. Um, whereas if we are trying to um, promote a flower brand, it's really difficult to get, um, you know, mainstream PR coverage for a flower brand. I mean, you don't often see like Vogue do a spread on, you know, rolling a joint and different types of weed and strains, right? Um, so influencer um, can be really important for that um, because that there are a lot of um, people that are, you know, that, that are kind of OG cannabis lifestyle influencers uh, that have a big following, um, but it is very niche to people that, you know, care about that, that buy flower, that want to kind of, um, you know, understand, get, get into terpenes and strains and things like that. And so influencer makes a lot of sense for them. And, you know, we want to work with cannabis influencers that know how to, um, you know, navigate social media without getting shut down, which is a big challenge for cannabis influencers, especially on Instagram. So I know I've answered that a lot of different ways, but it really does depend on what the client wants. Yeah. Um, if they're opening a dispensary, that's when we are bringing out the dignitaries from the local community um, for a ribbon cutting, you know, and bringing, um, you know, the journalists and influencers that we think are going to most resonate with that specific community. So we just opened a dispensary in Back Bay, Boston. Um, you know, that's a very specific neighborhood. And so who we invited to that event, you know, was very hyper-targeted. Right. Do you find those platforms, you know, there's a, a ton of different like influencer platforms where you can find influencers. Are those worth it or you just do it the old fashioned way mm -hmm. and kind of scour the internet or 
Sure. Um, you know, I think that those tools can work well for lifestyle influencers, and they are definitely tools that I think um, are very worth using if you are either doing, um, you know, a mainstream lifestyle brand or even a CBD brand. For example, when we used, when we um, launched Martha Stewart CBD, that was a very mainstream audience. So a tool like that makes sense. We weren't really using cannabis influencers. We were using, you know, kind of lifestyle influencers and food influencers. Um, cannabis influencers are a completely different bag. I haven't found that those tools are very um, helpful because if people are um, doing cannabis social media correctly, they're not really using certain types of hashtags that are gonna get them shut down and they're not really gonna be findable in those tools. Um, so um, we're fortunate that our, our cannabis influencer program is led by an actual cannabis influencer who's on our team, who you know herself has you know over 20,000 followers, has worked with brands on a paid and you know paid basis and a, a product basis for many years and really kind of understands the scene and who the players are. Um, so that has helped us a lot in identifying people. Um, and then we will also really just kind of spend some time digging in. You know, we're working on a program in New Jersey right now that is a newly legal market um, where, you know, there aren't a lot of people identified as cannabis influencers. So it can even be as <laughs> nitty gritty as going to some of the established channels, um, like, you know, um, like if there is a, a, a New Jersey cannabis platform and kind of looking at who's following it and who's following them and kind of going through and trying to identify who those people are, because they might not yet be popping up in tools. And if they're not using, you know, certain hashtags like hashtag cannabis, which is a surefire way to get your account shut down, it's tough to find them. So doing cannabis influencer work is a lot more complicated, um, but I think that's where we bring value to our clients because the knowledge that we're bringing, you cannot find and buy in a tool and not just anybody can do it, much less do it well. Um, and it is really important, um, you know, once you do identify the influencers to really help manage that content and the best practices that help keep them from getting their account shut down or shadow banned. Um, there's nothing worse than if you're doing work on behalf of a brand and you get shut down because of it, like now you're going to hate the brand, right? So you don't want that to happen. Right. Um, and it doesn't help a brand out if the person that they're paying to post now doesn't have a, a site. So that's a constant challenge that, you know, we deal with in cannabis, um, but a welcome one, because again, um, you know, we call ourselves trailblazers because we're trying to help our clients kind of <laughs> go to places where no one's been yet before, right? And figure it out first. And um, cannabis influencer work is very much that kind of work. Right. And it's true. I mean, influencers, you know, there's so many smoke and screens, you know, do they have real followers? Is it mm -hmm. genuine? You really have to do a lot of legwork, uh, investigative work to figure out if these people are as influential and as big as they, they seem. So yeah, and they don't bring mm -hmm. the people out yeah, and the okay, clients okay. ultimately want analytics, right? Um, regardless of whether you're doing paid or earned media, you need it needs to be trackable and measurable. Um, that's part of bringing that more sophisticated CPG approach to cannabis. And more clients are asking for that now. So you need to be able to work with influencers that, you know, will be transparent um, about who their followers are, where their followers are, um, and what kind of, you know, views and interaction they're getting on their content, which are tools that Instagram provides. I'd also say beyond Instagram um, for cannabis, we really look at other places. Twitch is a big place um, now to for cannabis influencers. Um, you know, um, we avoid TikTok right now because of age gating. 
Um, but obviously that's a huge platform that people are looking at. Um, and, you know, YouTube is another one that increasingly is um, useful for product demos and product testimonials. And so there's some clever ways to use that. None of these platforms are super cannabis friendly, um, but, you know, you have to get in there and test the waters. There are people that are doing that. And there are people that have grown some pretty significant followings on those platforms. How do you track ROI for the um, for the influencers? Is it through like an affiliate program? Is that basically how you're kind of giving hard numbers? Are they Pam? I wish I could do it that way. Um, it's really challenging. Because... <laughs> I mean, I know that's a big question. I know, I know. Well, I'm just curious. There are ways doing. to do it. You know, in a normal world, you're dealing with e-commerce, and so you can you can track conversion, which is basically tracking from somebody seeing or viewing or interacting with the content to purchase because they're going online to purchase, and you can track that activity. Um, because THC is not sold online and is only sold in a dispensary, it's much more difficult to track purchase as the result of, you know, an influencer. Um, one way we're getting around that is using um, unique codes. So kind of promo codes that, um, you know, followers of influencers can redeem at a dispensary. It's kind of a clunky way to do it, but it's really the only way to do um, that type of conversion right now. But the other analytics that are important are, um, you know, whether it's PR or influencer, you're kind of looking at, you know, views and, you know, you're looking at interaction and you're looking at kind of the quality of the content and the quality of the interaction, right? Are people commenting? Are they engaging with the content? Um, you know, so you're looking for a combination of volume and quality. Do you have contracts like minimum contracts or what do you say to them? when they hire you and you first start with them, like don't even think about looking at ROI for three months, six months, nine months, when can you expect? Is there's, is, how do you answer that? Cause I know everybody's chomping at the bit, especially right now, since, you know, there's not a lot of money flowing through the industry and marketing mm -hmm. is, you know, budgets they're afraid to let go of that money. So I'm curious how you respond to your clients when they ask you. Yeah. Well, client expectations are always high, um, often too high, but, you know, we of course always aim to achieve those or exceed those. Um, you know, a lot of, we, you know, my cornerstone is real talk. I'm always very candid with my clients. I'm never going to blow smoke or lie. Um, you know, when we, um, if we are working with a celebrity or a more established brand, I have a pretty good sense of, you know, what type of results we're going to be able to get um, versus if we are working with a brand new brand that is no one's ever heard of, um, if it's kind of more of an indie brand, if it's in just one market, right? It doesn't mean you can't get PR for it, but it means that it might be more of an uphill battle, right? Um, and so um, the expectations are going to vary a lot. You know, uh, we have found that in general, we can average a story a week. Um, you know, so if there's 52 weeks in a year, you know, we're aiming to deliver 52 stories. And some of those stories might be a Forbes or a USA Today, and some of them might be, you know, a small mention in a local paper. Um, we may have a three-week period with no stories, and then we may have five, right, because the news is very cyclical and coverage is tied to different campaigns and launches. Um, what we do, though, Pam, is we look at what the client has going on, and if we don't think they've got a lot going on that's newsworthy, we work with them to develop a campaign that will help make them newsworthy. Um, a perfect example of that is um, we had a client last year that was um, launching um, a new edible, a soft-baked brownie. They're launching it in Massachusetts in one, so one state in one store that was not even in Boston. It was an hour outside of Boston and right before Christmas. So um, the conditions for that 
for coverage really couldn't be worse <laughs> because it's seriously <laughs> just Christmas alone. <laughs> right. Um, God. So what we did is, um, you know, we started working with them in advance on that about what we could do. Um, we came up with the idea of a PR stunt, which is was that we wanted to um, bake the world's largest pot brownie. Um, and uh, that we would release it on National Brownie Day, which happens to be, you know, um, December 8th, um, which was around the time frame that they wanted to drop this product. Um, and we basically did that as a PR stunt, you know, a way to get coverage for this company and, you know, for this brand. Um, and it doesn't always work out, but, uh, you know, a well-timed PR stunt that has all the elements. So, you know, it's got to be, um, you know, unusual or weird, right? It has to be, you know, it has to be timely. There's a lot of different things that have to be in play. Um, but that one, you know, fortunately took off, kind of went viral. And it was really because kind of right idea, right time. Hard, hard to hit those types of metrics and definitely not something that we can do every single time. But it's an example of a client having something that wasn't very newsworthy, um, you know, and us trying to help them make it newsworthy and having a client that's willing to play ball and hold off their launch and tell us the specific day that we choose, which was the day before National Brownie Day. You know, they could have launched it a little bit sooner. We waited for that day because we knew we'd have more impact if we pegged it to an actual national holiday that people would cover, um, you know, and having them willing to help us figure out how to bake the thing because at the time they didn't even have an oven <laughs> that could do it. Um, you know, so we had to kind of figure out the logistics of, of how to do that. And we didn't have a lot of budget, but we had a really creative, collaborative client um, that figured out how to make it work. And, you know, it, it delivered great results for them. And also the key to that, I think, probably was um, those people who were trying to promote National Brownie Day were like, how are we going to promote that? What's the big deal? Like, who's going to who's going to even care? But at least they were like, oh, look, a giant cannabis. Brownie. Yeah, I mean, it's not a holiday that normally happy. people write a lot about, but, you know, it just happened to be, you know, we needed a reason, you know, reporters need a reason to write a story on a specific day. So if you send them a story that they could write any Tuesday, you know, they're on deadline, they're, con they're constantly, you know, churning things out, they're often, you know, being either compensated or promoted based on the number of clicks that they can get. So they need, you know, the right types of stories at the right time. So you need to bring them something that is timely and has a sense of urgency um, and has like a moment. Um, so, you know, we're always looking at, you know, what, what we can do right now, um, you know, we're doing this, uh, you know, two weeks before Thanksgiving, we just worked with a client to um, roll out a Thanksgiving cannabis survey yesterday um, in advance of Thanksgiving that talked about, it was kind of a Thanksgiving survey that talked about, you know, people's different, um, yeah, cannabis consumption habits, how much they were going to be buying for the holidays, if they were going to be serving infused foods, um, and have already seen some really nice coverage, you know, from local coverage, local TV to Forbes on that survey. And we did that survey for the purpose of getting PR. Um, and we actually know it's, um, it's actually gonna be included in the New York Times story soon too. So, um, awesome. you know, we've, uh, it's a good, uh, but it's a client that we could never normally get in an outlet like that, but we brought the right type of content and data, new fresh data, um, you know, to these reporters at a time when it's relevant, right? Um, and so, you know, that is kind of the art and science of PR. And while, even though earned media is, free PR never is and it should never be you know something that you assume that you're not going to you know spend as much on as you would spend on social media or other marketing because it takes um, the relationships it takes you know a lot of strategy 
um, and, you know, really um, persistent execution to be successful. Um, I'm sorry, what kind of client was the Thanksgiving client? An MSO, um, it's Air Wellness, which is an MSO that's based in Massachusetts. They operate in many states. It's the second year in a row that we've done a survey like this with them um, and kind of pegged to Thanksgiving and Green Wednesday being the second biggest cannabis sales holiday. So, you know, for them, we're trying to drive more sales to their stores. They have promotions going on, but also how can we bring them into, you know, a national cultural narrative where cannabis might not normally belong and where their company is fighting against every other cannabis company to try to be somebody to talk about this at this time. So data is a great thing that you can bring reporters that they can build a story around if you can bring them new unique data and a survey is an easy way to do that. So they basically sponsored the survey? Mm-hmm. You know, a, a survey that just comes from a company, it's hard for that to be newsworthy because that's a little bit of a biased source. So we always work with our clients to help them partner with a third party, um, such as YouGov, Harris Interactive, which is a polling service, Suzy. These are all consumer insights companies. So the client kind of sponsors the survey, but it is conducted by a third party. That way, you know, they are yeah. overseeing it. We have input, you know, on the questions. Obviously, we're supplying questions for the types of headlines that we're hoping, you know, to hit. But we have to see what, how the data comes back so that we can decide, you know, what we can use. Um, but and that's something that we planned. You know, we started planning that, um, you know, at least two months before Thanksgiving, knowing um, that was ahead. And we are now already, you know, doing in planning mode for things like 420 that will, won't be till April for the same right. reason. So basically, so basically, if this article gets is going into the Times under another whole um, top or under the similar topic, it'll be air wellness uh, survey, blah, blah, blah. This is what they found. Mm -hmm. That's how you're going to drop them into the. Yeah, correct. Oh, wow, that's it. correct. That's fantastic. Wow. So creative thinking that's it it takes a, it takes got. a lot of energy and look not everything hits and not everything works right um and that is the other thing is you know when i talk about being candid with clients like sometimes they have something that is not going you know it's not going to be newsworthy and um you know and it's maybe not the best thing to put all of their energy against right so we try to get the most you know coverage we can for the news that they have and sometimes there's news a company just has to put out for their investors and for their business but you know, a lot of people think that every, you know, every single time they sneeze that an article should be written and that is not how it works. Like we work for the journalists, like we have to bring stories to the journalists that they can use and we need to be their partner and that's what makes this work. So we're always kind of trying to look at it from their point of view of, you know, they have to bring the story to their editor and get approval from their editor to run this story. So, you know, what can we give them, you know, that is unique and that is good enough for, you know, their outlet, right? Which they have a very high, high journalistic bar. Yes. Yes. Wow. So interesting. Or just don't have um, an easy okay. job right now. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Um, okay. So I have two more questions. Um, the, um, so if, if, if someone is looking to, or what would be your, your advice for a brand looking to get national rec recognition? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously with the cannabis industry, um, there's a lot of just local, um, uh, local uh, PR work being done, but soon or brands are trying to get a jump start on on federal legalization by building out their brands and going to different states. But mm -hmm. I don't know. Is it really even possible to start your brand awareness, uh, national brand awareness, if you're really not, if you're only expanding into a couple of states? Do you just stay within those states, or 
Again, this comes down to your objective. It absolutely is possible, um, but it, it kind of it depends on what your business model is. Um, so for example, um, we worked with a psychedelic client a couple of years ago that was launching, um, it was called Mind Bloom, and they're launching, um, when, we, when they hired us, it was to launch um, a, a new ketamine clinic on Fifth Avenue um, in New York City. So um, at the time, their strategy was they really wanted to hit the New York elite you know, they wanted to kind of influence the influencers in Manhattan. And so, you know, we set up stories with New York Magazine and, you know, we, we really focused on like that, that particular audience. Well, then right after we launched, COVID hit, everybody went on lockdown. And so they decided to change their business model and now be the first clinic to offer at home, um, basically telemedicine with ketamine. So basically at home psychedelic where they would be mailed a kit and they would do this at home. Well, that changed our media strategy because now they're, they have a more nationwide market. It's outside of New York. Now they have several states where they're offering this and they need to appeal to a much broader audience and the message is different. So we really changed our tack. You know, we had um, a journalist at Women's Health um, do, you know, try it and write about it and do a big piece for Women's Health. Vogue wrote about it. Um, you know, so we, um, you know, we went for a much wider net of more mainstream media, um, you know, still trying to hit a certain de demographic, which was, you know, kind of their core demographic that is, you know, most likely to try this, right? Um, somebody that already spends money on wellness, right? And that, um, you know, uh, is into alternative medicine. Um, but yeah, it changed our strategy. Um, so again, like, you can absolutely launch with national media, we usually do. Ultimately, the internet is the internet, right? You can read a story online just as easily in Canada as you can in Mexico, as you can in the US. Um, regardless yeah. of where a piece hits, I mean, we have seen things happen. Um, uh, it's funny because even when we launched the brownie, we initially, because the client was based in Boston, we launched, we, we pitched Boston off, um, outlets and they didn't pick it up. But once it was started being picked up by like TMZ and USA Today, and national outlets, then the local outlets all picked it up and wanted us on radio shows. Um, sometimes it works the other way where you can't get national coverage, but you can get a local yeah. story and you'll see that national you know, outlets will kind of troll local media to find interesting stories. Uh, the late night yeah. TV writers will be looking at those types of stories to find weird news. Um, and yeah. so, you know, it works both ways. Um, but I really look at like, again, what is the client trying to achieve? Are they just trying to build brand awareness? Are they planning to expand a lot to states or do they just need to get butts indoors, you know, in one town in, in, in Massachusetts, right? And if and the strategy is going to be a little bit different depending on their goals. But national media right. is 100% possible with, with cannabis. I think the thing to remember is that um, consumers don't necessarily care or want to hear about cannabis any more than they want to hear about ketchup or toilet paper, you know, or... Uh, you know, laundry detergent or anything else, right? Like consumers aren't walking around waiting for your brand <laughs> to present itself to them, right? So um, we really see it as our job, regardless of what we're, what client we're representing, is how can we bring our clients to culture and to consumers so that we are finding a way to bring their brand to something else that consumers care about. So, you know, whether that is, you know, um, a holiday or whether it is a need state like, um, you know, trouble sleeping, right? Um, so um, if, if that is, if those are the, the, 
problems that our brands are trying to solve, then we try to find ways to bring them to conversations that people are already following about those topics. And so it's much harder to try to pull people to your brand and just to bring your brand, you know, to the party that people are already at, right? So that's really what, what we try to do with strategy. Truly psychedelics are becoming the health and wellness next wave of of helping people so and and there's a ton of cpg products out there under the radar but i can't seem to find the ones who will come out and talk about it even kind of put their brand out there but talk mm-hmm. about it you know from behind the scenes they're, you know announcing their names um are you seeing cpg brands coming uh, uh psychedelic cpg brands coming to you kind of preparing for yeah well, first, Pam, you're totally right. Um, psychedelics uh, are really, I think, outpacing cannabis right now, um, both in consumer interest and immediate interest. And a great example of that is, you know, every year we put panels together for our clients for South by Southwest. And for the past, you know, maybe five years, South by Southwest has had a cannabis track. And last year they added a psychedelics track. Well, this year they accepted twice as many psychedelic panels as they did cannabis. So that just goes to kind of show you where the conversations are going. Um, You know, we have repped, um, like I said, like a ketamine clinic. We have repped um, a client that produced um, psilocybin and 5-MeO-DMT retreat um, in Jamaica and in Oregon. Um, And those are, you know, some pretty intense psychedelics. Um, and have done kind of luxury retreats. And then we've also repped um, like functional products. So for example, Bob Marley's family launched um, a functional mushroom um, tincture line, which is um, the beginning of a series of products that will include psychedelic products um, starting outside of the US. Um, So we've worked in the space, we were probably one of the first agencies to work in the space from a lifestyle perspective and get mainstream coverage early on. So yes, it's super topical. Um, It's been, it's honestly a lot easier to pitch to media. I mean, if I ask them if I can fly them to Jamaica to go do mushrooms at a luxury retreat, it's usually a yes. (laughs) And a lot easier than like, hey, will you try my CBD tincture and write about it, right? Um, there's a lot of interest that's easy for them to sell in to their um, editors. We've been able to get like voters and a farm magazine and, you know, Bloomberg and, you know, some really, um, you know, top tier outlets to participate in that. What I haven't seen is what you're talking about, which is CPG brands. And the reason for that, I think, is that where we're seeing growth right now um, is in what people can do legally. And that is retreats. So you can do ketamine retreats in the U.S. right now in Oregon and Colorado just uh, voted to legalize. So those will be coming to Colorado Um, and you can do psilocybin retreats. Jamaica is actually the only country in the world where psilocybin is completely decriminalized both to grow it and to use it. So they have retreats there. Um, There are retreats that happen in some other South American countries. Um, So that is a space. And then I think um, companies that are doing clinical research uh, for things like PTSD, et cetera. What you're not seeing is a ton of um, CPG products. And the ones that you do see um, are a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a reach, you know, like psychedelic water, but really it's just what, you know, there's no actual psychedelics in it, but they're kind of trying to lean into that craze. you know, or, um, you know, clinics that offer, you know, like psychedelic breathing, but really it's just like deep meditative breathing. There's definitely some people that have tried to attach themselves to that craze, but there aren't really any true psychedelic products, um, CPG products that are legal to purchase in the U.S. right now. That said, there are some black market ones 
you know, you can find, you know, mushroom chocolates and things like that. Um, and they will make their way to the scene. Again, we are trailblazers. We're already preparing for this. <laughs> We've already been working in psychedelics for two years. Um, you know, we will be there the day that there is the first, you know, legal, you know, psychedelic chocolate bar launched in the U.S. Um, and that will come. Um, microdosing in general, I think whether it's cannabis or psychedelics is um, something a lot of people are talking about outside of just um, a more clinical medical approach to psychedelics. I think um, from a recreational standpoint, much in the way that people have approached CBD or like microdosing THC, not to get high, but to manage stress, anxiety, sleep, um, you know, other different mental health issues, given the mental health crisis that the entire world is in right now. Um, I think, you know, psychedelics are going to keep pushing to the forefront. Um, it's going to be a while though, before you see psychedelic Coca-Cola, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually just at my local farmer's market. They have a stand there. There are chocolates that they're selling and mm -hmm. capsules, psychedelic or psilocybin chocolates and capsules. So I thought, wow, but packaging you know packaged mm -hmm. and online there's definitely some marketplaces uh where they're selling all the different chocolates but yeah i'm really looking forward to that that industry mm -hmm. coming online so but uh thank you lisa for joining me really appreciate uh your time and oh, you bet thanks for having me on as a guest i appreciate it Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.